With the dawn of the new year, though, we all kind of like to set some goals for the year, some New Year's resolutions, some kind of hope for the future. There's a certain amount of resiliency we feel at the turning of the calendar, like maybe this year is going to be a little better or different, or I'm going to start something or do something that I should have been doing all along, or I'm going to stop something that I had been doing that was kind of detrimental. But let's be honest, a show of hands, how many of you have ever actually fulfilled a New Year's resolution? I'm going to call you up and ask, ask, you, ask you what those are, because um, based on the reading that I did, about 10%, so say a few of the psychologists that I looked up, say that our New Year's resolutions actually work. Now, there is a lot of homespun advice as what to do or don't do to make your resolutions kind of actually work out into some kind of fruition, uh, certain steps that we can take, and I might even share some of that a bit later of what I found this week. But before I pass along that advice, let me just say these two things. First, I believe we all share the desire to be better than we are. We all, it's something interesting about the humans, right? We just, we think that things might work out better than they currently are. It doesn't matter how good things are, and interesting enough, it doesn't matter how bad things get. We seem to have some kind of hope, kind of deep down within us, that, that maybe this time, you know, maybe, maybe this year, that things will get better. So we, we want to be better. We want to live a better life, uh, lose weight, exercise more, drink less, uh, love more, watch less TV, read more, accomplish more, be more fulfilled, help others more than we do. It's these dreams, I think, that kind of make us, make us human. Secondly, I believe that real change happens, at least mostly, incrementally, bit by bit and piece by piece. There's not just some big day that all of a sudden, pow, now I'm different. Um, and that's the challenge, I think, of New Year's resolutions. We think that, oh, well, when the new year starts, then I'm going to be different. It's like we're always going to start the diet on Monday. We're always going to kind of start the new thing, as though we think there's going to be this kind of uh, huge shift in our lives, which rarely happens. Often, though, what happens is that we are creatures of habit, and we all have habits. We all have practices. There are things that we do on a regular kind of daily or weekly basis. And the, the key, I think, to kind of changing who we are is identifying those small habits and realizing it's in the small things that kind of make up kind of who we are. So for Epiphany, we're focusing on the Spirit that is the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of life and breath, the very life and breath that we have in the Spirit. We've titled the series, I Have a Dream, and we'll be looking at uh, various biblical characters each week to see what dreams they had, not just the dreams they had when they were asleep, but their dreams, the hopes that they had for the future, and the ways to which they were either fulfilled or unfulfilled or perhaps uh, transformed. And so our hope is that as we look at these biblical characters, that we too might find individually within ourselves hopes for 2018, uh, dreams that might be fulfilled, and not just individually, but corporately. Oasis Community Church is a community of faith. Who, who do we want to be? How, how do we want to live out a faithful Christian life in the context of Lakeland or the greater Lakeland Polk County area. So uh, let me just start by saying this. One of my uh, favorite books 
It's one of those books that I can kind of go back to again and again and kind of reread uh, once every year or two. It's by Belden Lane, and it's called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, Exploring Desert and Mountain Spirituality. The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. There's several things that I love about it. Uh, one, Lane is just a, a fantastic writer, and so I just, I just find the literature kind of engaging. He talks a lot about kind of meeting God and nature, so it's got a little bit of that uh, Thoreau or Emerson kind of feel to it. So I'm not exactly an outdoorsman, but I did kind of grow up in the mountains, and I love the waterfalls. I love the beaches. I love the mountains. I love the deserts. And I, I find kind of that being in the outdoors is a spiritual experience for me. Um, I, I love to just go to Circle B and just kind of roam around. And uh, well, not too far around because, you know, you got those big alligators out there. But, but it's, it's just a sight to see. Uh, this past week, we took the family uh, over to Blue Springs, which is near Deland, and we saw the manatees. Now, you know, they're pretty fascinating. It's not like they move around a lot, right? They're just kind of floating there, giant kind of sea cows. But, but they're, they're fascinating. The, that life kind of comes to us in all these expressions. There's this other part about this solace of fierce landscapes, though, is that when you get out in nature, you realize just how vulnerable we are. Like we live with this kind of false sense of self-sufficiency that we think we can just do it ourselves. And then you kind of get out in the desert or you get out on the mountain and you realize, whoa, I'm not going to make it here very long without some kind of help. And it's that veneer of self-sufficiency that can get stripped away and we get kind of woken up from our comatose state and realize that without God, none of us would be here. The other part of the book that I love is it's a bit autobiographical. He kind of moves between kind of writing about God and nature as also writing fiction about his kind of experience uh, of, of, that, of those places. And there's this autobiographical uh, thread that gets pulled through it too, that is when Belden was writing the book, his mother was dying of cancer. Um, and so he had these periodic trips kind of back to her home to kind of care for her. So when I first read the book, it was about 2011. Uh, it was written in the late 90s, but I, I came to it in about 2011, which was when my mom had passed. And so him talking about the death of his mom was kind of another way in which the book resonated with me. It kind of came into my life at just that right time. And then his response to all that, his response to nature, his response to the death of his mom, his response to God, was this kind of contemplative spirituality, this sense of silence and reflection and just kind of meditating on God and on Scripture and those sorts of things. And I, I too, find that. I find that very helpful. So to start a series on I Have a Dream and to say we're going to be talking about the Spirit you may have anticipated that this would be a very kind of lively, kind of fiery thing. You I mean, you know, you know my background in kind of Appalachian Pentecostalism. So this might come as a surprise to you then that uh, today we're going to focus on the person of Job, whose, whose life was blessed in so many ways, but at least the, as the majority of what we find about Job in Scripture, he's not at his best. In fact, he's hanging on by a thread. He's living in that part of life where life seems to just barely being able to have a hold, barely even existing. 
Life can be found on this planet in the most unlikely of places. Uh, when we think of a desert place, particularly if we think of it metaphorically, like we're thinking of uh, the, the kind of dry, uh, arid um, kind of lack of, of, of life, we think of those times spiritually as kind of the tough times. But it's interesting that, that in the early church, there were a whole, whole groups of people who kind of flocked to the desert. Because the desert and desert spirituality was a way of kind of seeking out kind of the harshness of the place. Because in the harshness of the place, again, the veneer that kind of covers our life, that kind of resembles self-sufficiency, kind of, kind of fades away. And we get this kind of reality um, that's already there but kind of unacknowledged by us that God is the giver of life and that our very life depends on God's kind of continual giving of that life. It's not just that once upon a time God did and therefore there was life, but the very breath that we breathe is dependent upon God kind of giving us that breath, that it's not simply reducible to the amount of oxygen or carbon dioxide or nitrogen or whatever it is that we think we're kind of breathing in and out, but that Scripture talks about life as being the very gift of God. So the lectionary passages for today were Genesis 1, that talks about God as creator, and Mark 13, which, which, excuse me, Mark 1, which looks at the baptism of Jesus. And in the baptism, you'll remember that idea that the, um, when Jesus is baptized in Mark, it says that the heavens were kind of torn apart. It's, it's imagery, and it's a little more easy to see in the original language, but it's imagery that kind of alludes back to the very creation, to the kind of the chaos of the new. So in the same way that God was kind of creating in the beginning at the baptism of Jesus, he's recreating. He's kind of giving life, and the Spirit kind of dis- descends as a dove and kind of rests on Jesus. And yesterday was Epiphany, and this is, this is kind of the baptism of Jesus Sunday. But, but for us, we're going to focus particularly on this idea of the Spirit and on the, that kind of precarious hold that life seems to have in hard places as we look particularly at Job. Now, Job's a conflicted character, and uh, the book of Job kind of shares that same kind of conflict. So uh, grammatically speaking, uh, it starts with some prose. It's like a story, the first two chapters. And then in chapter 3, it launches into poetry, and it continues. The rest of the book is in poetry until the last half of the final chapter, which is chapter 42. The last half of the chapter kind of switches back to the story. So if you're trying to read a story about Job, you only need to read about two and a half chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and the last half of chapter 42. That's the only story we get. The rest of it is poetry. And you you can tell this when you're looking at in your own Bibles, like, you'll, you'll have the first few chapters, and it looks like it's all in paragraph form. And then once you start in chapter 3, it's kind of broken down, kind of short lines, and they're kind of staggered, right? Because the, it's written in kind of Hebrew poetry. And so the, the book is itself kind of, I don't know, uh, complex in, in that way, that it's kind of shifting in genres. And then Job is very complex. I mean, we start in chapter 1, and, and Job is facing hard times, and this is Job the faithful, right? Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Now that's a guy we can get behind. Look, I didn't start with anything. I'm not going to end with anything. Whatever we got, we got because of God. Blessed be the name of God, right? Now that sounds like a faithful, you know, believer. And we're like, yeah, Job is responsible. Job's an adult. Job is a well-adjusted, you know, believer in God. And we're like, yeah, that's good. However, throughout the remainder of the book, I mean, the majority of the book, Job is complaining. Job is protesting. Job is mad. Job's defensive. I mean, Job abandons his resignation as early as chapter 3 and doesn't really give it up until chapter 40. Uh, the difference in Job's words are, again, paralleled in the difference of uh, the genre. And it, we, also sees this, we also see this with his friends, right? So his friends, the Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I'm sure you could have come up with those names yourself, but we've, we, we, we have this kind of vague reference to Job's friends, right? And do we think of Job's friends as good friends or bad friends? Good or bad, you think? Yeah, most of the time we think of them as bad, right? We say, there's actually an adage, if you have friends like Job, you don't need enemies, right? Because Job's friends are kind of, most of the book, right, they're kind of battering him, right? Hey, you should have done this. Hey, here's this problem. But they don't start that way. In, in chapter 2, when Job's friends are first introduced, this is what the book says. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that he was suffering. And they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, my friends, those are good friends, right? They've heard that bad things have happened to you, and they're like, hey, I got to go. I got to go see my friend, right? And so they all set out from their own homes, and on the way to Job's house, they, they, they run into each other. And they're like, hey, where are you headed? I'm going to Job's house. Of course. Have you not heard? Yeah, I heard. So they, they get to Job's house and they're like, oh, we don't even recognize him. I mean, Job's looking bad. He's unrecognizable to his friends. And so they sat with him for seven days and seven nights and they didn't say a word. Now, those are good friends. Because in times of suffering, in times of deep suffering, there are no words that you can share with your friends that are going to be helpful. There, there, there are no words that make things better when things are at their worst. But we can offer our presence, our friendship. You don't have to have some kind of magic words or special words that are going to console and comfort. Your very presence consoles and comforts. Just, just to be with them, right? And just to have them with you, right? We, we all kind of need that. We long for that. And at least initially, in the story part of, of the book, Job has said, Naked I have come into the world, naked I shall leave. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And his friends just show up and just hang out. So everybody gets an A+, plus, right? Based on our theories of uh, how, what it means to be a good person and 
what it means to be a follower of God. But then chapter 3 comes, and Job starts to complain. In fact, a lot of our, a lot of our translations uh, subtitle chapter 3, Job's Complaint, or Job's Lament. Job goes at it. This isn't right. I've been done wrong. Uh, where is God uh, when, when times are bad? And his friends are like, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. God? God? That's how I imagine Eliphaz saying it. I thought he had a real deep baritone, right? Well, Job, let me tell you about God. And so Eliphaz launches into this kind of theological treatise that Job is a sinner. Job, you've sinned. I mean, obviously, because, look, these, these things have happened to you. And, and then Job responds. And then Bildad jumps, jumps in. And Bildad says, Job, you should repent. Right? Repentance. That that's kind of seems to be good advice. Like if, if I asked you to repent, you'd think, okay, yeah, I should repent. If you asked me to repent, that seems like good advice. No? So, 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 so Bildad says, Job, you should repent. And Job's like, repent? What for? I haven't done anything wrong. And then Zophar jumps up and he goes, Job deserves punishment. He's speaking of him in like the third person. You got to love that, right? <clears throat> when your friends, you're suffering and your friends are around and they start to talk about you, but not to you, but just about you. And <clears throat> I guess he's talking to the other two people there. And, um, who are they? Eliphaz and Bildad. And he says, yeah, Job, Job deserves to be punished. So in each case, Job responds, right? Job defends himself and Job blames God. Well, that's just more than they can take. So we go into round two. So Eliphaz speaks up this time and he's like, Job, you're undermining religion, right? What you're saying can't be right because we know what's right. What's right is there's this one God and he created everything and we've read this and we know this and what you're saying can't be right because it disagrees with what our, our tradition, what our texts say. Now, the, despite, the, despite the fact that Job's experience of suffering has deconstructed his belief, they can't, they can't kind of see that, right? All they see is they know what they believe and, and Eliphaz says, Job, you, you can't talk to God like that. You can't talk about God like that. So Bildad, Job, of course, defends himself. Uh, Bildad jumps in and Bildad says, God punishes the wicked. You're being punished. So that's right, Job, you must be wicked. Zophar jumps in again. And I'm pretty sure Zophar's comments in the second round are almost exactly the same as the first. I'm thinking he must have been the, kind of the least articulate of the group because he basically just said the same thing he said before. He, he says that um, wickedness deserves just retribution. We go through another whole third round of this where, where they, they kind of um, condemn Job for one reason or the other and he defends himself and he kind of defends himself against God. He makes claims like, if my story could be written on the mountain, if I could get God in the witness chair, like he's indicting God, right? If I could get in a court case and we get a, like a righteous judge and I can get the Lord God Almighty sitting on the witness stand, I can prove to the rest of you that I'm right. 
Those are strong statements. So after the third round, and in the third round so far doesn't say anything, I figured, well, he already repeated himself once, so he must not have anything else to say. But after the third round, uh, another character comes into the story. He's, he's a young guy. He's, I mean, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far seem to all be kind of up in age. And so this, this youngster comes through. I imagine him just kind of getting out of seminary, right? He went to uh, the Slomo Seminary over there on Mount Zion somewhere. And he comes in. There actually is a seminary called Shlomo Seminary. Yeah. Um, so he, but not back then. That was a little anachronistic. So Elihu comes in, and he's this young guy, right? And he just kind of lays into him. And he's telling them how they're all wrong with their, with their thought. And he's like, you know, Job, you don't have this right. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, you don't have this right. And he's kind of, kind of going through with a fine-tooth comb, kind of correcting their theology. Right? It's what all young people do. Um, forgive me if you self-identify as young. Um, we've lived a little bit of life, so we think we know what it means to live. Right? We've read a book, so we think we know the answer to things. Uh, you know, we've raised, we've raised one kid for, you know, a year, and we think now we're perfect parents. Um, youth betrays us sometimes. It certainly has Elihu. Uh, Elihu's a know-it-all. Elihu is like the young C.S. Lewis writing The Problem of Pain. He's not like the old C.S. Lewis who's writing Surprised by Joy. Right? He's, he's the person who has yet to live enough to really comment on deep suffering because it doesn't seem as though he suffered. And even though Elihu kind of launches into a long kind of uh, rebuttal of Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, it's interesting that neither God, because God speaks next, nor Job, nor Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar respond to him at all. His words are just kind of left hanging there. Uh, nicely done. I'm sure you got an A on your paper on the problem of pain. But next, God speaks. Finally, God does show up and God speaks directly to Job, and it's not soft. It's not the comforting uh, God that I would have wanted, given the extent of Job's suffering. It's, uh, hey, Job, were you there when I created the world? Oh, no? Oh, how, okay. That's nice. Job, were you there when I created this bit or that bit? Job, do you know the answer to this question or that question? Job, do you really know who you're talking to? It's very interesting, and in, in, in that's chapters 38, 39, and the first part of 40. Finally, Job kind of risks a response to God, and he says, uh, I did say a lot of things, but right now I'm going to shut up. And it says, Job chapter 40, verse 4, it says, And Job took his hand, and he covered his mouth. Job, Job doesn't have anything else to say right now <laughs> because he's, he's got what he asked for, right? He's got an audience with God, and he, now he has an epiphany, <laughs> a, 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 a revelation as to really who God is and who he is, and it's time to defer. What comes next then 
is we finally, that, that ends the poetry bit. We're, we're into chapter 42 now. And this, this is the first part. There's only a few verses left in the book. But this is what it says in the prose bit. The story finally picks back up some 39 chapters later. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So here's my question. In these translations, and I, and I looked up a lot of translations, they, they consistently are saying that these three friends have not spoken uh, correctly about God. That says that Job has. Now, if we pause and look back, what they said were things like people sin, sinners should repent, wickedness deserves judgment, uh, God is just. I mean, does any of that sound incorrect to you? Because it doesn't to me. And what did Job have to say? Well, Job had some pretty scathing things to say, scathing things, scathing things to say about the Almighty. So what is it that Job got right and they got wrong? It's, it's, it's perplexing to me. So I, I had a um, professor in seminary uh, write an article about this, this verse. And uh, I find it fairly convincing. He says this. He says that the, the preposition that's being used there that gets translated about, more often than not, is translated as to. And if we translate it that way, then maybe something else comes into uh, focus. It says, now therefore, no, it says, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me rightly as my servant Job has. In which case, the argument is not that Job's theology was correct and their theology was wrong, but in the midst of the suffering, Job had spoken to God and not just about God. And, and the rightly there has a, a bit of a double entendre. It's not just like right as in the sense of correct, but right to, like direct to, like straight. Like, like in English colloquialism, we might call it straight talk. Like sometimes we can be kind of nice and we have a certain level of social sensibilities and we know how we're supposed to behave in public. But other times we just get blunt and we cut to the point and we're like, hey, friend, that's wrong. And it's that, it's that lament, it's that straight talk that, that really Job is full of. Job, Job, I mean, 39 chapters of it, at least the 39 chapters when Job is speaking, which is punctuated throughout that, Job is in full-blown lament. A third of the Psalms fit this category. The whole book of Lamentations, right, is about it. Um, 
We don't really have enough space, I'm afraid, in the way we sometimes think and talk about God, right? Because we think and we talk about God only in this kind of mountaintops, sunrise, sunsets, beauty of things. And we don't realize that most of our life is kind of mundane and a good portion of our lives is actually hard, right? We struggle and sometimes we suffer and not because of our own doing, right? You know, a hurricane blows through and it kind of leaves us in, in, in disarray or it blows across an island and it's more disarray. I mean, 50% of Puerto Rico still doesn't have power today. That's, that's a serious problem, Right? There are people who were flooded in Houston uh, who, who still have not been able to make it back home. There have been people who hurt by Irma in South Florida who still, who still haven't had their lives put back together. And then we get, we get um, medical diagnoses, right? We have accidents and tragedies in our lives. Horrible things happen, and we find ourselves, we, we lose our job, or our spouse loses their job, or our, our kids you know, run away or, I mean, there's so many like horrific things that people suffer through that is part of like life. And what do we have to say about God then? And if I'm, if I'm hearing Job correctly, it's not what we say about God that matters. It's what we say to God. And what we say to God can be as straight and as direct and as harsh, and God seems to be able to kind of take it. God doesn't seem to be threatened by our lament or our complaint. In fact, God seems to be happier with people's talking directly to him than those who just speak about him. Now, if that's the case, if, if Ricky's translation about to God and straight talk is legit, I mean, grammatically it is, but then uh, in terms of the literature, in terms of the story, does it hold? Well, I think so, because, because the next verse, or the next two verses, talks about Job praying for them, for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So the book ends with Job praying for his friends. The book had opened with Job praying for his children. Like, before anything goes bad for Job, it says that Job was the kind of guy who got up and prayed for his kids. So here's, God, here's Job talking to God on behalf of his kids at the beginning of the book. And here's Job talking to God on behalf of his friends at the end of the book. And so what we get in this kind of big story, like in an inclusio, is that Job, in the midst of suffering, talks to God. We're reading this book, Fresh Air. We just started. Our first session actually is going to be this Tuesday night at 6.30, the opening chapter is on Job. And it, it focuses, just a little preview, it focuses on this verse from Job where Job says, until I lose my last breath, I will praise the Lord. And that's not in the, in the, the prose uh, section where he's all nice talk. It's in the midst of the suffering section, the poetry, where Job's like laying it out against his friends and against God, he says this, I know my Redeemer lives, and if there is one last breath within me, I will praise God. Now that's a guy we should be able to get behind. I know the story's disjunctive. I know it kind of lacks a little bit of 
integrity in terms of character formation and development stuff. But, but there is this integrity in there, right? That we, we say when things are good, blessed be God, we complain out the wazuzu when things go wrong, but there is a faithfulness for those who are willing to get past just talking about God and those who are willing to actually talk to God. So what is it about this precarious hold on life that Job had, that we all have? Job's dream certainly was for something other than what he experienced, right? He, he wasn't hoping that his life would fall apart and he lose his fortune and he'd get sick and almost die and his wife curse him and his, his uh, you know, children die. Nobody hopes for that. But he did have the breath of God nonetheless, right? He survived it. And as he survived it, he prayed to God, and God finally did answer, and Job ended up still being the person who could pray for his friends. I'd like to end with saying just a few things about our New Year's resolutions. Scientifically, um, in psychology today anyway, they were saying that there are some steps that you might take to, to kind of put your best foot forward in terms of your resolutions. Uh, two, main, two main lines of thought. Uh, the first is the science of habits. We mentioned that earlier. And the second is the science of kind of self-stories, like the stories we tell about ourselves. So just three quick things as it relates to habits. If, you, if you're going to try something new, pick a small action. Don't say, I'm going to get more exercise or I'm going to eat healthier because that's not small, that's big. Say, I'm, I'm, going, to, um, I'm going to walk you know, 20 minutes a day. That, that's different, that's, that's precise, it's something, it's something small. Or I'm going to do it three, day, three times a week. Or, or say that I'm, I'm going to cut uh, sugar cereal out of, out of my diet. I'm imagining myself doing something good. Right? It has to be small because it's in the small things, right? This is this tiny little things that, that habits get formed. Uh, secondly, you need to attach that small habit to something you're already doing. It's hard to introduce something completely new into your life. So what, whatever, I mean, you're already sleeping, you're already eating, Right, you're already moving at some point. So take that habit that you already have and attach this new small habit to it. Right? So I'm going to get more sleep. So I'm going to go to bed at a regular time and get up at a regular time. Or I'm going to get more exercise. I'm gonna, you know, you're already walking um, 20 minutes three times a week. So say I'm going to walk 30 minutes three times a week. Right? A add that small bit to a habit you already have because your habits are already moving you. They're, they're already animating, animating you. And lastly, it needs to be something easy. I mean, don't, don't use a New Year resolution to conquer the world because the you in 2018 is the same you from 2017. I mean, you haven't changed that much. And th there wasn't some major event that took place in your life at the turn of the new year, right? It's, it's a bit arbitrary. So since you're the same you, you need to kind of do these, 
kind of very precise thing, kind of small things, and, and actually practice, practice them. The second is this idea of self-stories, right? Who do we think we are? Like, if you, if you think of yourself back in terms of the New Year's resolution, if you think of yourself as someone who's kind of healthy, um, then you kind of do healthy things. If you think of you someone who's going to kind of die young because you're unhealthy, then, then you're going to do things that, you know, fulfill the, the, the self-prophecy, right? Like, who do you think you are? What story are you telling about yourself? Now, if you can tell the story, be honest as you can, then you can always edit that story. And that's where the, the resolution comes in. We're editing our stories and we're telling ourselves that, okay, I'm this, but then I'm also doing this other, right? I'm adding this kind of habit, which is part of what I think living the Christian life really looks like. Like the Christian life is made up of practices and habits. You pray, you come to church, you fellowship, you sing, you worship, you give your offerings, you offer your volunteer service, right? You, you, you care for your family or your friends or your community. Um, that, that's, that's the practice. That's the habits of life, of the, of the Christian life. And while they might seem kind of small or insignificant to you, because, because frankly, if you get up this morning and you, and you read a chapter, it's, it's, that's not gonna, it's not a wonder drug. You're not going to suddenly become the, the best Christian the world's ever seen, right? It's not because you've done a thing. It's because you regularly practice something. It's because it's become kind of second nature to you. It's, it's habitual. And it's in those things that we get these small little habits and practices kind of worked into the very fabric of our lives that we find ourselves kind of faithfully living the faith. <laughs> so whether it's weekly church attendance, which we encourage you to do, joining a life group, regularly giving of your resources, volunteering, coming to breakfast. Maybe, maybe in the past you haven't come to breakfast on Sundays. Maybe that could be something you start doing. Come to breakfast, get a biscuit, sit across from someone that you don't know, and say, hi, my name is, how was your week? Right? I know it doesn't seem like much, but trust me, it's in, it's in the small, habitual things in our lives that, that shape us into the type of people who care for one another, who'll take the time to sit and eat and share with one another. Receiving communion, I think, is one of the key points. It's one of the Christian practices. No, you say, well, look, it's just a little cracker and it's a little, little bit of juice. I mean, what, what can that do? It's amazing what that can do. You faithfully do it. You faithfully come. You faithfully partake. And it will feed your souls in ways that you can't feed yourself. It's the communing of the saints. It's the fact that we all come together to worship God and then we partake of what God has to give us and the spirit of life, the very breath that we breathe, kind of enters into these everyday elements and our regular practice of it will shape us into the people that we are intended to be. Prayer, of course, I think is 
at the top of that list. And I think it's the lesson we need to learn from Job. Talk to God. It doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be theologically sound. It just, just talk to God. Don't, I mean, don't, don't forsake the other things you do, church attendance or you have a, a podcast you listen to or, or scriptures that you read, but none of that really is a substitute for talking to God.